We study billionaires, and this is episode 115 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. Hey, how's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for The Investor's Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Seoul, South Korea. Today, we have one of our favorite guests back on the show, and that is Toby Carlisle. And uh, we just wanted to do an episode to talk about current market conditions, everything that's going on in the world right now. We've got a new president-elect all sorts of changes in the markets. And we think that it's probably wise just to talk about all these things that are going on. So I want to open up the show and welcome to the show, Toby. Always a pleasure to have you back on. Thanks. Always a pleasure to be here. All right. So I want to open up the show with this idea that back in the 9th of March, 2009, the Dow Jones Industrial Average closed at 6,500. And then this week in November 2016, and we're recording this on the 23rd of November, the Dow has passed 19,000. And when you think about going from 6,500 to 19,000 on the Dow, and we've only had one rise in interest rates, the Federal Reserve has only raised interest rates one time through that entire. 300% gain. And then let's add this in there. The one time that they did raise the interest rates, they did it at 0.25%. So I'm starting to feel like I'm the crazy person in the room. Dig and I talk about it. We've been talking about it for two years and I'm starting to feel like I'm the person who is totally missing something here. What are your guys' comments? I mean, for me, I can't even wrap my head around this. I'm at that point where I'm, I'm like George Costanza in that Seinfeld episode where, you know, he just does the opposite of everything he thinks is going to work and it leads him to getting the really beautiful girlfriend and then he gets a job with George Steinbrenner. I'm like that. Whenever I think something, I just do the opposite. And that seems to be working really well. Yeah, I really can't make any sense of this. I feel like clearly we're not near the Japanese territory from 86 to 91, but I mean, at the beginning of that, in the middle of that, you were saying, oh, there's a PE of 30. And then you were saying, wow, there's a PE of 50. It can't go any higher. And then it just still skyrocket up to 100. I mean, I don't know how long this can go on, but it definitely has to end. And I think now we were talking about that before, but I remember a quote from Toby. And now I'm really putting him on the spot here. And we're talking about the valuation of the uh, S&P 500. And when you sat back then, Toby, I think it was probably a year ago, something like that. You said, well... I know I sound crazy, but if I had to come up with a fair valuation of the S&P, it might be around 1100 or 1200 And I got to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, we are far from 1100 to 1200 on the S&P 500. And I would still say, I don't know exactly where it is at the moment, but it's probably around that level. That's probably in a normalized interest rate environment too, which we're a very long way away from now. And the market has spent decades soaring above fair value. So valuation is not a great way of determining what the market's going to do anytime in the next two, three years. In the, in the short term, which is still like years and years, you know, it's sentiment or momentum or something else like that that drives it. Guys, let me run some of my logic past you here. So leading up to the election, we saw that Donald Trump's numbers started to become more realistic, like he was going to win. And when we saw that, we saw the market, literally, it was, how many days in a row was it? Was it eight or nine days in a row that the market was down whenever it looked more probable that Donald Trump was going to win? Nine, I think. Yeah, it was, it was nine, nine days in a row the market was down. It was, it was a record that hadn't been reached in years. Well, he wins and he makes this 30-second speech about increasing fiscal spending and the markets absolutely go bananas. They go nuts. Now, the thing that I find most surprising about all of this is the idea that the bond market is having a massive explosion 
Okay, you're seeing people jumping out of the bond market left and right. Bond prices are going to the floor. The yields are screaming higher because now that he's talking about this fiscal spending, everyone's like, oh, well, inflation's going to start coming in. So I guess this is me walking the dog on the logic here. Okay, so just hear me out on this. So if people think inflation's going to go up and they're jumping out of the bond market and yields are going higher, why in the world would an expensive stock market? go even higher as interest rates are going up. Help me understand what's going on here. It's not a mathematical equation, is it? It's all of that sentiment. I'm not entirely sure that presidents have a huge influence on stock markets. I'm sure that policies do over the longer term, but I don't really think they do. I remember vividly that nine-day drawdown because it got to a point where we would ordinarily put on a hedge. It was close. It wasn't quite there. And we were worried because it was the Friday before the Tuesday election. We weren't entirely, or maybe it was the Thursday before. We were worried that we were going to put on the hedge. We thought Clinton was likely to be elected because that's what the polls said. And we thought the market was likely to recover when Clinton was elected. And so we thought we're going to be in this terrible position where we put on the hedge and we get turned upside down straight away. But we didn't have to make the decision because we weren't quite at that point yet, but we were thinking we were getting ready to do it. And then we'd recovered from that point. And I think that was our low for the year and recovered from that point and sort of started getting away from the hedge. But on the night of the election, when Trump came in, the market was off gigantically, like 600, 800 points. And we, we thought, we're fools for not putting the hedge on in time. Yeah, it was a really a roller coaster ride. And the interesting thing was that clearly when all the old polls came in and the market were closed, and it appears that Trump would win. The future market for S&P 500 just fell off a cliff. And like it was almost looking like uh, they could be halted because it were near a 5% drop. Uh, Nikkei at some point was minus 6%. And then when the markets opened and like everyone has apparently slept on it, it was like, yeah, let's just leave the you know, market around flat anyway. It was just such a weird experience. And it just shows that what you said before, Toby, that there's a lot of psychology in it. Like, fundamentally, it's probably not that big of a difference, at least not in the short term. That's not what we're seeing at all. I looked this up recently, today or yesterday. Earnings topped out at $107 for the S&P 500 as a whole, $107 in late 2014. And earnings have fallen since late 2014 to $87 now. So they've come off $20, which is close to kind of 20%, which is a pretty big drop in S&P 500 earnings. And over that period, the market has actually advanced. The PE on the market has got even higher. I'm at the point where the market is just impossible to forecast. And I'm kind of with Buffett in the sense that I can speculate about what's going to happen, but time that you spend trying to figure out what the market's going to do is sort of a little bit of wasted time. You could be doing things that you have not more control over, but you know, I, I can look at individual stocks and I can see that they're cheap. There's a great quote, and I forget the exact quote and the provenance of it, but it's like the uh, Portuguese biscuit maker doesn't worry about interest rates and the dollar and all of those sort of things. He just worries about selling more biscuits than the guy down the road. And I think that's kind of, you can kind of get, there are some businesses that they are, they are simple enough, you can value them. And when they're at a huge discount to what you think is fair value, you can put them on. I think that works. So Toby, I love your optimism and how you're viewing this. And I totally agree with the comment that you just made about trying to focus on what it is that you do know and which direction you can go with it based on the conditions that you've been served. So when you say that there's decent companies out there, give some of the people in the audience an example of what you're talking about. This is a funny time to be talking about it because that furious rally that we've seen that started sort of just before the election, and it continued on even today for us. I have seen all of the positions that I have in the portfolio and that I've been tracking for a long time. A lot of the discount has been juiced out of the whole thing. It's, it's been kind of, it's great when you capture it, but it's sort of, it's left the cupboard a little bit bare for new positions. The thing that I was talking about last time was Humana, which has the takeover bid and they're going to court in a couple of weeks. So that was, um, I forget exactly where that was trading, but that was 160 or 170. So it's way, it's over $200 now. It's $207. That was a very big position for us. And we've had a lot of these merger arbitrage positions on that have sort of closed up. So the things that we're looking at now tend to be literally like off the run, just undervalued, 
security. So just to throw one out there that I like is Greenbrier, which is the ticker's GBX. They make rail cars and things like that. There's a lot of people who will tell you why rail cars are really ugly at the moment. Partially, it's energy's getting hurt, so there's not as much energy being shipped. There's just a slowdown generally. So not as many rail cars are being made. And that you can see it in a lot of the companies in the industry have gone the same way. We put on Greenbrier earlier in the year and it's run up a lot over the course of the year, but it still continues to be one of the cheapest stocks in our portfolio. And you can it's cheap on almost every metric. The thing that I love about it is it's buying back stock. It's got about a 7% buyback yield. And we've been buying the equity and we've been selling just out of the money, put options a few sort of quarters out. That's sort of, we hold the equity because that's the most tax efficient way of doing it and the equity is cheap. But we also are trying to, assuming that it's sort of a, a market that just traded sideways, which is what it has been for most of the year until more recently. In the event that it just trades sideways, if you're selling the options, you're at least generating a little bit of yield on those positions. If the position moves against you, you're then automatically buying a little bit more equity, which is good behaviorally if you're a value investor. So that's one that I have liked all year and continue to like now. I think that it's not, it's not as interesting as it was six months ago. Ticket is GBX if, if anybody wants to look at it. And will you talk about specifically about GBX or just Catalyst in general? Because that's one of the things that all value investors, and I guess all investors are really looking for, because clearly you're buying into this equity, Toby, because you think that it's undervalued. Now, what do you want to see as a catalyst for it to approach its intrinsic value? Greenbrier is closer to being something that's just merely undervalued, where it really is just going to be passage of time, improvement in the industry, and that can take a very long period of time. But the one thing that does stand out for me is the, is the buyback. 7% is an unusually large buyback yield. And what that means is that if the stock falls a little bit, the company itself is in there buying its own shares back. And if it's undervalued, so buybacks typically are associated with value destruction because Managers tend to buy more stock at the top of the market and less stock at the bottom of the market. But good managers buy the bulk of the stock back when the stock is undervalued. Greenbrier is undervalued in my estimation. And that buyback yield, 7%, is substantial. So that's one thing that can cause the price to move closer to the intrinsic value. At the same time, the intrinsic value is being improved. So that's one thing that I like. And the way that we're kind of generating a little bit more yield, we're generating our own catalyst in it is by selling the put option. So if we're selling out a two or three quarters, we're getting very substantial yields on it, sort of 15% profit. And then that sort of annualizes out to a number that's like 45 or 50%. And just to follow a question to this, because I'm really curious about the concept of opportunity cost here, because clearly it also depends on your conviction on this peg or any peg for that matter. But when do you think that, hmm, I hold on to the stock for... X number of years, now it seems to be what we call a falling knife, that is probably not really going to materialize the, the value that I'm seeing. How do you identify, yes, this is, I need to get out of this stock because it's not going to materialize. And when do you simply hold on and, and, and wait? We have a valuation. So we have an idea about what we think it's worth. And that's updated every time they produce new, new numbers. So on a quarterly basis, we update our valuation. And we can see because we have a, a system that's looking at all of these stocks and it's tracking all of them at the same time. So we can see if something, you know, the best case scenario is something stays undervalued for years and years and years. So Humana was one of those stocks that it was undervalued for six years. It was one of the cheapest stocks in my portfolio. And every year it was up like 15, 17, 20%, which is an ideal situation. Uh, it's just one of those stocks, even though it was huge, it was kind of hated. Conversely, the worst type of situation is when you have a stock that's got a deteriorating valuation. And we would try typically to avoid them unless it's very, very undervalued and you can see some short to medium term event that's going to prevent that from happening. And so the sort of things that I would look for is, has an activist filed a 13D notice, which, which means that they've bought 5% of the stock and they want the company to buy back stock or they want to fire the managers or they want them to sell the company, that's the best way to generate a return. Absent those things, it's not a nice place to be. At some stage, you have to say the valuation has deteriorated to the point where this might continue on. The discount is still substantial, but 
there are better opportunities that we can find because we find the valuation, valuation changes slowly, but there are other stocks getting shocks and coming in and out. So at the start of this year, the cheapest stock in the screener was Hewlett Packard, the hardware spin out HPQ. And that's been, it was one of those stocks that I've got no particular insight into HPQ, but the two things that we liked, it was the cheapest thing in the screen that was improving over the course of the year. The options in it again were sort of very rich. So we could sell the options in it, buy the equity. And that's something that it's now sort of the fifth or sixth cheapest stock in the universe. And that's sort of what I like to see it sort of moving away. And it'll get to the point where it's sort of 15 or 30 or something like that in that universe. And we'll say, well, are there better, cheaper opportunities for us? And that's a good time to kind of get out. I don't think that HPQ is a great business, but you know, it's sort of at a massive discount to valuation. They have a huge buyback going on as well. That's one of those things that, that at least management's doing something on your behalf there. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Our friends at Corient provide wealth management services centered around you. Corient's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Corient put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Corient.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. That's Corient.com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So we came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. One thing, Toby, I, I can't help to think of is that when you talk about special situations, and you mentioned a few examples here, it seems to be, I guess, for a lot of investors to be a very complicated investment strategy. You're talking about different types of instruments, not only just buy and hold, which is the most common approach, but could you elaborate on which type of skill set one would need to acquire to take advantage of special situations and how to obtain such a skill set? The best book on it, well, the best book that I have ever read is Greenblatt's Yellow Book, which is called You Can Be a Stock Market Genius. He goes through all of these scenarios and how you can find them. I know that it's a reasonably complicated book because a friend of mine who is very smart, I think this could be 10 years ago, maybe even longer than that, he came to me and he said, there's this investment strategy and it's just super complicated. And the way that you make money is you just, you read these filings that nobody else would read. And that's kind of your advantage. You know, I think that a lot of these things are complex at first blush, but once you sort of understand the mechanics of them, they are actually pretty simple. But getting through that first, there is a steep learning curve. Initially, I have an advantage because I've been an attorney and I did mergers and acquisitions 
for a long period of time. So I've drafted these documents and I, I understand the mechanics internally before I invested in them. I'd spent a decade kind of familiarizing myself with them. And I've seen some of the thought processes when directors are trying to fight off activists or deciding to pay a dividend. And so I'm sometimes looking for those things where the the special situation hasn't manifest yet. They haven't declared it, but I can see it sort of, it's coming because the stock's so undervalued, but they've got the cash there to do something. And they're typically been good managers in the past. So that's a sort of long way of saying that I have an advantage because I've been an attorney, but you don't need to have done that. You can, Greenblatt's book is the best place to start. So I'm really happy that we got to talk about special situations, uh, Tobias, you can probably hear, because one of the things that we talk a lot about here on the podcast, that Warren Buffett, and we have talked a lot about a lot of his newer investments, is always sparks for a good discussion. And for one thing, I can't wait for the mastermind discussion that we'll soon have, and we'll be talking about his latest picks, which is completely another ballgame. But let's actually talk about where he started, because he actually started with a very different type of investing. And this is these special situations that we've been talking about. Because before he started Berkshire Hathaway, he actually had a very impressive record. Because over 12 years, he recorded more than 29.5% in the stock market. Very impressive. And this was not in his successful investments in Coca-Cola, American Express, as you will later have with Berkshire Hathaway. This was something completely different. So, Toby, could you please tell us a story about one of Warren Buffett's special situations in his early career? And perhaps more importantly, what is it that he could see which other people couldn't? Buffett's investment strategy when he first came out was very like Benjamin Graham's in the sense that he was looking for stocks that were undervalued on a balance sheet. And then he's looking for the more liquid part of the balance sheet, which is the cash or the inventory. So he was trying to find these stocks that Basically, the earnings were so bad that they had traded down below liquidation value. And sensibly, most people are frightened away by those sort of, you know, if you think something's in financial distress, if you think it's heading towards bankruptcy, the instinct is not to want to buy it. But you can train yourself to sort of start seeing those as opportunities if you're looking for that balance sheet value. So that's one of the first places that I look. What does the balance sheet look like? And that was what Buffett was doing when he found this company called Dempster. They made uh, components for windmills, which is not a very sexy business. And they had built up a gigantic inventory of them, which they didn't seem to be able to sell. And so they had declining sales. And so the stock was sort of valued on the basis of the income statement, which is not uncommon. And the market seemed to have ignored what was on the balance sheet. So Buffett saw the balance sheet value, figured that he could come in and he could sell off the inventory. He didn't count on the fact it was really in distress. It was within days of bankruptcy. And he had this uh, fixer by the name of Harry Bottle. And he got Harry, that was the sort of first time that you meet Harry Bottle in any of the books about Buffett. Bottle came in and I think I heard recently, he literally like drew a line in their warehouse and he said, you just got to sell everything on the other side of this line, it's a fire sale. You just got to get it out now, whatever price you can get, just so they could raise the cash so they could survive. And then after a while, what they had done is they'd turned all of this pretty useless inventory into cash. And, you know, Buffett's a great investor. So he was able to sort of turn that into the business doesn't ever really get great, although the business did improve. But all of a sudden, it's a liquid balance sheet. It's got cash. It's the sort of thing that you would want to buy. And uh, he did very well. So, that was sort of a semi-activist type approach that he took looking at a, and he kind of like partially liquidated with the help of Harry Bottle and he was in a control position, which is very different from the sort of the way that he invests now. But it, it's been a great investment strategy for lots of guys. So Greenblatt was doing exactly the same thing, probably not to the point where he was activist or where he was getting control. I'm not sure exactly what he did because sort of no one's really canvassed it. The book that made Greenblatt famous was the Magic Formula book, the blue book that he wrote. And I read that when it came out in 2006. And I I didn't realize that he had also written the yellow book. And I just read the blue book and I loved the blue book. And then somehow I saw the yellow book. And that was at the point that I realized that it was the same guy who'd written both books. Because the strategy is so different. In the returns that Greenblatt puts in his blue book, where he was sort of doing 40%, Greenblatt generated those returns as a special situations guy. 
the problem with it and the reason that everybody sort of moves on is that there's a finite amount of capital that you can invest in these type of situations. I think it's, it's a lot. It's still like hundreds of millions to maybe a billion dollars, that sort of number. But it's not as scalable as the other stuff. Yeah, and Toby, I think it's real natural. Like you hear about, call it 29% for Buffett or 40% for Greenblatt, and you're thinking, I should do some of that too. And I find this great stock and it's trading well below book value. There must be some value here. Now, there's this difference, right? Because if you have, say, $10,000, you're usually not able to take over the company. Like you can't necessarily be the catalyst yourself. So if you are a small time investor, is there any way that you can actually be an activist without actually being an activist, but still get some of the same returns? The two things that you can do, you can follow an activist. So this is one thing that I used to do when I started writing my blog, Greenbacked 2008. What I was looking for was something that was something that I would buy. I would try to buy outright and I'd look for deeply undervalued on a balance sheet basis, sort of sub-liquidation value. They all had really ugly businesses. And I'd tell people that I was buying these things and I'd describe the business for them and they were overcome with sort of disgust. You know, people used to leave these comments on the blog sort of trying to tell me, this is just crazy. You know, this sort of stuff that you're buying, it's very risky. I was sort of relying on the balance sheet value. But the other thing that I was relying on was that every single one of those positions had a 13D notice filed, which is the filing that the activist has to make. And I could go in and I could read their, they described their strategy in those 13D notices. And if it made sense to me, I'd have the position. And it's extraordinary the number of times that either management listens to what the activists say and so they sell the underperforming part or they pay some money out or they buy some stock back or they sell the entire company or the activists get on board and they do the same thing. So that's called coattail riding. And that's one thing that Buffett used to do. Buffett used to ride on the coattails of other investors before he was sort of big enough to be the prime mover. The other way is rather than trying to get control, you're sort of trying to, I call it, synthetically recreate a catalyst for yourself and you do that with options. It's a little bit more sophisticated. I'm not pretending like you need a master's in finance or anything to do that, but you need a way, you need an unusual way of valuing the options or you need an unusual way of valuing the equity, which is just to sort of work out what you think the company's worth. If the equity is at a big discount to what you think it's worth, and then at the same time, the options are very rich. Now, I do this valuation where I say, if I sell this option here, which is the same as buying the equity, it's, it's a little bit difficult to kind of visualize, but you just have to trust me that selling an option is like buying the equity. Your downside profile looks like you've bought the equity because if the market goes against you, you get the stock put to you and then you own it long. So selling an option is like buying equity. You just have to remember that. But the upside is capped at the amount of premium that you get. So a lot of people say, why would you do that? Why would you go and cap your upside? The reason is that you get all of your upside immediately. So if it's a $10 stock, say it's trading at $10, and I can sell the $9 option, and the $9 put expires, say it expires in March next year. So I've got about four months to run on that option. If I can get a dollar for that option, then I've actually, if the market goes against me, then I've only paid $8 for that stock because I've got a $9 put, stock's at 10, it's a $9 put and I've got a dollar for it. So if it moves against me, I have to pay $9, but I've already got that $1 in the door. So I've effectively paid $8 for that stock that's trading at $10. So the way that I think about it is so I have a 20% discount before I have to buy that stock. The other way of thinking about the upside is I've got a dollar and I've effectively got to pay $8. So my dollar return on the $8 stock is 12.5%. It's $1 on the $8. And then I've only got to have that for four months. So if I annualize that number, it's getting up towards sort of 37, 38%. That's a good position to put on. If you put on lots of positions like that and the company is undervalued, that's crucial because you want positions where you want to buy the stock. So if it goes against you and you buy the stock, you're sort of excited about the fact that you got it 20% cheaper than you otherwise would. If you're doing it with expensive stuff, then you don't want to buy the stock and so it doesn't really work. But you want to buy the stock. So it's a, it's a way of getting into positions more cheaply. It's a way of generating return if it doesn't get put to you. I think it's just a great little kind of simple thing that individual investors can do. 
it is a little bit confronting the first time you sort of come across it. But there are lots of websites that will describe how to do it. Greenblatt will describe how to do it too in his book. Do you have any articles that you've written sorry, that we link to and if people want to mimic that approach? I haven't because it's my super secret strategy that I try to, <laughs> I've just told everybody how to do that. Of course, if you don't like the idea of selling the put and then you know, you're, sort of, you're getting long the equity, the other thing that you can do is buy a call that has a lot of time to run on it. So you, know, you, might, you might be able to find January 2019 calls. That's another interesting thing to do. So if you're worried about the stock, So we prefer to put on positions where it's very undervalued, but it's also very safe. We, we don't think that there's much downside in there. All right, Toby, fantastic information. One of the things that Stig and I wanted to do with you is play a question from our audience and kind of get your feedback as you respond to one of the audience members. So we're going to play a question from Soham, and we really appreciate Soham for sending this question in. So here we go. Hi, President Stig. Great show. Thank you for all the work that you do. My question is, what advice would you give to a recent college grad who wants to make a career out of value investing? What steps would you tell them? What books should he read? What courses should he take? Things to that nature. Wow, Soham. Great question. Toby, would you take the first hack of this one? There are two sort of ways of going about doing it. There's the classical way that if you get into Columbia Business School, And you go to the value investing course taught by Bruce Greenwald, and you do very well in that course. And then you come out and you'll find a job in a value investing hedge fund or a value shop. So that's one way of doing it. The universe of people who are going to be able to follow that path is very small because it's hard to get into Columbia or one of those sort of equivalent ivies. So the other way of doing it is the way that I did it, which a lot of other guys have done. You need to be able to set up your own account and trade your own account in a value style. And one thing that I found was very effective is you write down in a diary or you write it down in a blog, which is kind of a public document. You can do it anonymously or you don't have to make it available to everybody. You write down why you're putting on your positions. Now, I advocate doing it publicly because... If you do well enough after a period of time, people will start to be attracted to why you're putting this position on. You'll improve because you get feedback from lots of people. Some of it will be brutal. Some of it will be very helpful. And you'll improve very rapidly for two reasons. One is that you have a record of why you did something. So if it goes wrong, you can find out what you were thinking at the time and why that thinking was wrong. And the other thing is that you interact with the value community, which is big and it's great. And they're always on the lookout for new ideas and, and new kind of thinking. So that's a very effective way of doing it, running your own portfolio and writing about it publicly. If you don't want to be, you don't want to attach your name to it, just do it anonymously. Just come up with a, a generic value name and just uh, interact with other guys and you'll find that you know if you've got some talent, you'll develop a following. In terms of the books to read, you can't go past the classics like Security Analysis, which is a really tough book to read, but it's, it's excellent. You should also read The Intelligent Investor. You should read Joel Greenblatt's books, both of them, The Yellow Book and The Blue Book. So You Can Be a Stock Market Genius is The Yellow Book, and The Little Book That Beats the Market is The Blue Book. I also love books like Jim O'Shaughnessy's What Works on Wall Street, because you can go through and you can see what value metrics do. Jim's a quant, so he writes about other things like momentum, which are less interesting to value guys, but they definitely work. The other thing that I found this book recently, just because I... I hunt around for unusual stuff on Amazon and I found this book on special situations by Maurice Schiller. And this is kind of a cool story. So Schiller was this guy in the 50s and 60s and he wrote these series of books that have become, they're not famous, but they're sort of well-known to value guys. Graham didn't really ever write about special situations. He didn't write about it until his 1950 edition of his book, which might have been the third or fourth edition of Security Analysis. And the only reference to it is like, this note buried on page 729 right at the very back of the book where he reproduces this article that he wrote where he describes what special situations are, which is basically that it's a corporate event. There's a fixed price that you're going to get paid at a known date in the future and you can calculate your profit and you can calculate an annualized return for that profit and the stock is undervalued. Those are the criteria for a special situation. And so Graham just sort of refers to it. He writes a few pages on it and then he moves on. This guy, Maurice Schiller, actually dug into the thing and he wrote 
these five books, the most famous of which is Fortunes in Special Situations in the Stock Market. So I was sort of, I was looking around for this book and coincidentally at the same time I was contacted by an investor and author, Tom Jacobs, who asked me to write the foreword to the, these books are going to be reproduced. So Tom tracked down this gentleman's children who are now, or maybe even grandchildren who are in their 80s. And he got the rights to these books and he's found all of this sort of fascinating biographical detail on the guy. And he's going to reproduce these books. The first one comes out next year and he's going to do it over the course of the year, produce five books. So I've written the foreword. Schiller is like a Graham Greenblatt kind of figure. He's become unknown because the books have been out of print. But when they come back in, he's sort of the towering genius will be recognized once again. Those books are, like all of these books, reasonably difficult to read. And some of the situations that he describes don't exist anymore. But if you read them, you'll understand the philosophy of special situations and tells you how to be sort of flexible and what to look for in, in different things in the future. So that's something that I'm sort of, I'm personally involved in. And I recommend Schiller's books. The first one of which will come out sort of January 2017, and then the rest of them will emerge after that. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joints range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-35 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com. Dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. 
Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. So uh, Soham, uh, Stig and I are not going to provide any additional comments because we don't want to taint Toby's response in any way because that was such a fantastic response to your question. So Toby, thank you for supplying that. So Sohan, for providing your question to asktheinvestors.com, we're going to give you a free subscription to Stig's video tutorial course that takes you chapter by chapter through The Intelligent Investor, which was one of the books that Toby had recommended that you read. So we're going to give that to you completely for free. And for anybody else out there that wants to get their question played on our show and potentially get a free subscription to one of our paid courses, go to asktheinvestors.com and you can record your question there. So before we uh, conclude this episode, we want to give Toby Carlisle a chance to give you a handoff to some of his websites and services and anything that he wants to promote. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Toby, and the floor is yours. Jets, thanks very much for having me as always. If anybody wants to get in contact with me, Greenbacked, which has got a funny spelling, G-R-E-E-N-B-A-C-K-D.com is a blog acquirersmultiple.com. I sort of put some of these little deep value stock picks up and there's some screeners on that. My firm, Carbon Beach, offers the special situation strategy in managed accounts and we'll also be sub-advising to a mutual fund that'll be launching closer to the end of this year. We can provide some links in the information under the podcast or you can, you can come through to the site and we can provide some more information there. Very much appreciate you guys having me on. All right. So at this point in the show, we're going to do something that's a little bit different and something that we haven't really ever done on the show before. And I want to bring on two of my very close friends, and that is Brett and John, to show you guys something that is going to be the coolest thing ever. And this has to do with artificial intelligence and programming. And it's something that they have done specifically for the Investors Podcast. And we actually just talked about this before the show. So we have a European currently here in Asia. For the show with Toby, we have an Australian living in California. And then John, he is actually in Lima, Peru. So this is just the awesome thing about the internet and the Masters podcast that we are we're literally all over the world. So Preston, go ahead and tell the story of how you met John Brett. So in mid-September, we had an event in Baltimore, Maryland where a bunch of the people from the community got together and we went down to a Baltimore Orioles baseball game. We went out to some bars. We went to the game. We just had a blast. It was the best night ever. And so one of the individuals who attended was Brett. And Brett and I started talking and he's doing all sorts of things. It's amazing all the stuff that Brett's doing. But he went to UPenn for his undergrad. Then you went to, was it UCLA for your master's, for your MBA, Brett? Yeah, that's correct. You went to UCLA. And so then we started chatting some more. So he's done venture capital stuff. He's been a lot in the media space and in the marketing space. And so we just had a great time when we were at this live event. And so after it was over, Brett shot me a message and he said, Hey, Preston, I have this idea that we'd like to try out. We do some programming work with Amazon's Alexa capability, which is their AI capability with their Amazon Echo. And he said, we'd like to try to do something with the Investors Podcast if you guys would let us tinker around with some of the episodes. And you know, I was kind of like, that sounds amazing. So Brett, tell our audience what it is. <laughs> you guys are going to get the biggest kick out of this because this is the coolest thing ever. Brett, tell our audience a little bit about the idea that you threw past me of what you guys were going to do with the show. Well, it was really a pretty simple equation for me. I'm a fan of the Investors Podcast. I'm a heavy user of Amazon Alexa. And I happen to work with Zap Media, which helps media properties and brands to develop these Amazon Alexa skills so that consumers can access the content through these Amazon Echoes. And so for us, it was pretty simple. I said, hey, we would like to do this with somebody. You guys are my favorite podcast of the moment. <laughs> and I wanted to be able to listen to you on Alexa. So it was a simple thing. We talked to you. I talked to John about how we could enable it. And the other thing that had come to mind was John and I had been talking about the fact that the way people were starting to enable podcasts on Alexa wasn't a great user experience. And, and John's team had some ideas on how they could make it a really good user experience. 
So I thought you guys would be perfect guinea pig. So talk to our audience about how this Alexa AI kind of works, because I didn't know anything about this. You guys started teaching me about it. I just find it fascinating. So just give our audience a little glimpse, top level view of what's going on behind all of this and why it works so well. So just so people understand, the Echo is the tower, and then Alexa is the voice and the artificial intelligence behind the tower that you interact with. And so you can teach Alexa skills. And that's what we did for the Investors Podcast. By teaching it a skill, really, John programmed some things and was able to interact with the learning module and the intent module, module that they have for Amazon. And that's what really brings the Investors Podcast to life through Amazon Alexa. So guys, I don't own one of these things, but I find this just to be so cool. And this was so much fun to do this with you guys. But if, say, somebody has one of these things in their house, how would they enable this application that you guys built? It's just a matter of saying, enable, we study billionaires. So that's all you'd say? You'd just go up to this thing and you'd say, enable, we study billionaires. And then this application that you'd programmed would just start working? That's right. Yes. All right. Show the audience, demo this for people. Now, John has this sitting next to him. So the audio quality might not be the best because it's going through a couple different feeds here. But John, show our audience what you're talking about because this is, this is just amazing. Okay. Now, so I already have enabled it. But after that, I say, Alexa, open We Study Billionaires. We study billionaires and this is the Investors Podcast. Our show is all about studying the most important books and ideas that billionaires say influence them the most. Thanks for joining us. To navigate the show, you can say play, scan titles, or about the show. Play. Study billionaires, and this is episode 113 of the Investors Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you. So that sounds great. You can do simple stuff like navigate through the episode. So I'll say, Alexa, play next. Billionaires, this is episode 112 of the Investors Podcast. So it's broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland. This Alexa, pause. So it's going from most recent episode and then back, uh, as one would expect. That navigation right there is very intuitive for users, and that's a lot of what people want. But we saw a chance to do something that we think is really neat, which is this scan titles feature, which I'll show you guys. Alexa. Tell We Study Billionaires to scan titles. At any time, just say Alexa Play next to jump into a podcast. Episode 113, Jim Rickards and the Road to Ruin, Part 1. So we get a little snippet, and then there's silence, and we have a chance to respond. Episode 111, Good to Great, a review of Jim Collins. Alexa, play next. Hey, billionaires, and this is episode 111 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting. Alexa, stop. If the audience could see the grin on Stig in my face, it's just, <laughs> we're dying. I don't know how anybody goes about programming something like that, but it's absolutely astounding. And this is, this is what our audience doesn't realize is John and Brett literally just came to us and like, hey, we'd like to do this for you guys. And they literally did this completely for free for us. That is the power of our audience. And we are so blessed to have people like Brett and John in our audience to do the coolest things ever for us, because this is just amazing. This is absolutely astounding. So guys, like seriously, I, I don't even know how to even begin to repay you or thank you for what you guys have done. But this is this is phenomenal. And I know anybody who has one of these Amazon Echoes out there and are hearing this, they're this is amazing. You're helping them out too. So thank you guys so much. This is unbelievable. Well, we love what you're wow. doing. And and the other thing I'll I'll tell you is so I'm I'm a listener of the show. We met up in Baltimore, so we had a connection. What I realized afterwards is John also had a connection because I think you've had his cousin on the show before. Yeah. Yeah. So when we were talking about the development of this, John and I started chatting and your cousins with Colin Roche, who we've had on the show two times and is, you know, an amazing guest, insanely intelligent. So we, we had another connection there. It's just absolutely wild. I mean, that, that was another reason why we're very happy to do this with you guys. You know, we built this because we really wanted to show off a lot of the neat things that you can do with the Echo device. And so we hope that, that you guys and the listeners are as excited about it as we are. And we know you guys are excited. So guys, well, the least we can do is allow you to have a little handoff here and talk about Zap Media because what you guys do is 
is absolutely amazing. So talk to our audience about what it is that you can do potentially for them if they're listening to this and maybe they have something similar that they want to do with their own business. All right. Well, I can start and John can fill in any of the gaps that I miss. I think it, at our core, Zap Media is focused on giving brands a voice. So there's millions of Amazon Alexa users, as we've talked about. Google Home recently came out with a competing product. Siri isn't quite as smart as these services today, but we expect something good to come from Apple eventually. And consumers really love these devices. So there's no doubt that they're helpful in the kitchen when you have your hands full. They're really the height of convenience. However, the internet today is a visual web. So the things you take for granted when browsing on a screen simply can't be done through a voice interface. So what products like Alexa are introducing is this concept of the voice web. What we need is we need content that was formerly visual to be made available through a voice interaction. And even a podcast, which already has audio content, needs a way for users to navigate by voice, to start an episode, pause it, skip, take other actions, as you heard John do. That's exactly what Zap Media does. John's team has deep experience. We've worked with mobile audio apps like Slacker and NPR and those types of things in the past. We've taken some of that learning and that deep expertise and applied it to these new voice assistants, which have really just come on to the scene. In Google's case, a month ago, Alexa's been out for about two years. So this is relatively new, cutting-edge stuff, but consumer adoption is tremendous. And so John's team has deep experience in voice engagement. And has developed a number of tools used to build great user experience and do it very quickly. Well, guys, we can't thank you enough. I, I really mean it. This was just the awesomest display of talent, <laughs> programming talent I think I've ever seen. But John, Brett, thank you so much. This is just awesome. That's great. Hey, thanks a lot. We love the podcast and we're really happy to be able to be on and to provide this service to your users. And so, as John said, Anybody who has an Amazon Echo or Amazon Alexa available to them, you know, today or right now, they should actually walk over to it and say, Alexa, enable We Study Billionaires, and they'll be able to access everything right off of Alexa and not be totally beholden their mobile phone every time they want to listen to it. So awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. And for the audience listening, we're going to have a link to their site in our show notes if you guys want to learn more about both of these two, which these guys are so bright, it's it's crazy. So uh, go into our show notes, check out their site, and see what else they're up to. It's pretty amazing stuff. Okay, guys, that was all that we had for this week's episode. We will see each other again next week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application.